only looking at the dogs in the night sky And you only wears God in your nightlife And you looking at the church and the motherfucker Wondering why where the dogs gonna say hi God, yeah, I feel like I'm on Welcome to Guys Open, I'm your host, Christopher Fisher Today I got on Craig Fisher and we're gonna talk about the Hellenization of Christianity, the Platonization of Christianity. This is kind of an addendum to the Black Sheep Theology roundtable that we did kind of on the same subject. We didn't really get to all the evidence and, and points that I was uh, hoping for in that discussion. And so we decided to do an addendum, I guess. And I got today on the show Craig Fisher to join me because he was very, very much uh, animated by the previous roundtable discussion i guess <clears throat> i guess i guess my primary concern is that uh plato Plotinus, the greek philosophers they didn't have revelation from god they didn't have the inspiration of the scripture they imagined that god had a certain list of attributes immutability simplicity uh, ineffability <clears throat> they got all those attributes from uh, logical syllogisms that they put together apart from the revelation of God. And, and then uh, this philosophy was imposed by early Christian church fathers on, on the Bible, the revelation that we got from God and how God really is. So this, this false philosophy that was um, purely imagination of uh, these early Greek philosophers, this became imposed upon scripture. And now we have a whole church that is trying to impose these false philosophies on God's word. I think that's a really important piece that this is, this is a mindset shift that happens within Christianity. It's not like uh, switching just from one God to another. It's an entire paradigm swap, a value set, a metaphysics, imposing an entirely different metaphysics. You have to be in the right frame of mind to understand their logic, what they're thinking, and how, how they get to their conclusions. You have to understand the, the value system that they've imposed that they're trying to meet with their metaphysics, and they frame everything in these terms, in these metaphysical terms, to try to reach what they see as the highest value in this metaphysics. Their metaphysics is Platonism, and Platonism for the highest value is that God is the most perfect being. And uh, we see that from Plato onwards. We see that uh, flow through the church. People like Justin Martyr came out of Platonism into the church. People like Philo of Alexandria, there's a famous saying that uh, either... Philo Platonizes or Plato philizes. Either, either one of them is borrowing from each other. And uh, yeah, yeah, your guess is good as mine. Which is which? I, I think Philo was uh, borrowing from Plato there. But then uh, that flows through Clement of Alexandria, who was a famous Neoplatonist. If you read the book, The Neoplatonists of Alexandria, it states that he might even be the first Neoplatonist. It's a Christian that that's uh, championing these ideas. People like Ammonius Sactus was a former Christian who converted to Platonism, and uh, his disciples were Origen of Alexandria and uh, uh, Plotinus, whose famous uh, disciple Porphyry wrote down all his works and edited his works. And from that, uh, that, that those works flew 
flowed through to Augustine, who read that and incorporated a lot of those ideas in his own works. And so there's a clear progression and there's a his, historical documents that we can put all these things together, th this flow of Platonism into the Christian church, primarily through Alexandria. I, I think it's important too not to fall into the trap. When, when we see it as a completely, uh, it's a completely new framework from either Arminianism or Calvinism. It's not listing a bunch of attributes of God. And a lot of times those people who are in opposition to open theism will say, what's your definition of free will? And then they try to trap you into this. They try to make you come up with these philosophical reasons that God must be this way or free will must be that way. Then they, they attack this philosophy. The important thing to remember is that, that God is a person. He, he doesn't fall under these restrictions. He's not a computer program falling under the restrictions. Free will is not a computer program. You know, sometimes God can, may override free will. It doesn't matter. Uh, we have free will, the ability to choose something other. And in, in every circumstance, there's different pressures. There's, And God has different plans in different circumstances. He might have two plans, but there's equally collateral damages in each plan that none of neither plan is perfect you, you know god doesn't have one way that he has to go and that's his perfect way and then he decides that but each each plan that comes up has uh collateral consequences unintended consequences and then god can choose between alternatives he's not restricted to a certain way there's no category of perfection that he has to choose some way to act in every situation. God is a person and he has choices to make. Yeah, that's a very important point. A lot of these categories that we frame our debates around, like free will and compatibilism and uh, predestination of all events, these are not categories that the biblical authors had access to. Their concerns were not, oh, do we have free will? And what does free will mean? It's, it's taken for granted. Like God is uh, creating people and then seeing what they do and figuring out things about people and then responding accordingly. It's there's there's no discussion. There's there's not there's not a scene in which God says, "Oh, should I create people with free will or should I create people that have robotic animal natures who can't actually?" Do that? There's no discussion of that. These are not even concerns or concepts that were available to them to consider. Free will is just everywhere and always throughout the scripture. It, it's so much so that the alternative is not an option, that they don't have access to it. And so I got pulled up the video by Christine Hayes in which she kind of she kind of details this. Now, she is a scholar of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and uh, she points out that a lot of these categories are later editions. And I got two other videos that we could pull up to also talk about this. I got a, a a Platonist Christian who says the same. And then I have an Augustine scholar who basically points out that Augustine himself, when he was growing up, he did not have access to the categories that were given to him through Platonism. He didn't have that before he was 30 years old. He spent a good deal of his life in scholarly circles without access to these categories that he would later get and impose on Christianity. It, it just... That wasn't that wasn't the common perception. 
So I'll go ahead and hit play on this Christine Hayes clip. I think one of the things I encounter so much in my teaching, um, particularly when I teach a, a Bible course, my, the, the introduction to the Hebrew Bible, um, students will say to me, this makes no sense. God doesn't act this way. God is omniscient. Why does he need to go down to investigate complaints on earth? God is omnipotent. Why can't he do what he wants to do? Why is he thwarted? Why couldn't he create humans so that they wouldn't have sinned in the garden? Um, God never changes his mind. God is one and the same. So how can Exodus 32 verse 14 say that God changes his mind? Um, and what I remind students is that um, that image of God is really um, an outcome of a certain Western philosophical tradition that's grounded very much in Greco-Roman notions of the divine as that which is static, um, immutable, unchanging uh, truth. And that those notions really come from a different cultural concept and a different kind of conversation. Um, God is the unmoved mover, um, and one in which perfection is understood to be stasis, unchanging, static reality. Um, and that is not the God that we meet in biblical and Jewish tradition. The God that we meet in biblical tradition is a dynamic God. This is a God who um, is intimately involved in creation um, and interacting with creation, learning um, about the creatures that he has created, um, changing course in response to their actions and their reactions to his actions. So um, to my mind, this is in fact the traditional um, notion of God, um, but unfortunately, we sometimes wear a set of lenses that have been handed to us through the Western philosophical tradition coming out of the Greco-Roman um, philosophical tradition, which speaks of the divine in very different ways. And we sometimes then read biblical stories or midrashim and are, are sort of shocked or scandalized by what we see there. You know, how could they describe God in this way? Isn't God weak or uh, doesn't, doesn't this impugn God's authority and divinity? to see him as, um, you know, uh, as, as being someone who negotiates or who could be talked out of things or who adjusts himself. And, and I think not. I think that for the Bible and for the rabbis, what's divine about God is precisely not that he's static, that which is static is dead, but precisely that he's dynamic and alive and interacting with humans and very much in need of their input so that he can make the necessary adjustments to be the kind of God uh, and ruler and, and king and father and friend and partner that they need. Uh, he needs good um, sparring partners. I like the phrase sparring partner because it captures the idea both of partnership, but also of challenge and, and, and being an adversary sometimes. So God needs sparring partner. Yeah. And so I would recommend the book from Dov Weiss, Jewish scholar, Pious Irreverence. And so uh, in this book, he talks about people who press back against God and argue with God and change God's mind. This is, this is a common feature within the Bible, within Talmudic texts. This is their conception of God, someone who, who you could interact with and you can change through that interaction. And so she's, she talked about this paradigm shift, this uh, Semitic thinking versus Greek thinking. Now, the Greeks were not monolithic, and that's that's that is a valid point. But what quickly became monolithic is Platonism, and so you see people like Justin Martyr talking about how the Platonists are premier. You have all the praises from Augustine and 
Ambrose about uh, the Platonists and how how famous they are. They they do take preeminence by the third century of all the schools. They're the most famous, the most well connected. That all the elites want to send their kids to these types of schools to learn these types of things. And so Platonism did gain that foothold, even if if there are these competing systems. But the Greek thought was we need a metaphysical system and we need to put God into this system. And so the arguments among the Greeks were what metaphysical system is the best God? Oh, are the, are the basic elements of this world fire or water, these types of things? It's like a metaphysical debate. Whereas in the Bible, when you see God debating the false gods, it's all about, it's a character debate. Who is God? And who are the false gods? And why is God the real God? What the kind of things has he done? What kind of things will he do? It, it's it's a debate about who is this person rather than what is this thing. It's different mindsets. And I think we could also see this in how Paul treats the Jews versus the Gentiles, right? He talks about they, they have separate modes of thinking. The Greeks, Greeks are after philosophy and the Jews are after tradition. That there's there's a different mindset that even Paul identifies. Yeah, the, the Greeks seek for wisdom, and the Jews they they seek miracles. <clears throat> you know what she said about Nakam? Nakam is um, in the Old Testament, and you see uh, Exodus thirty two fourteen when God changed His mind, and He did not. He repented from the evil that he do. He did not say that he and he did not do what he said he would do, and that's repeated in Jonah chapter three. It's repeated in First Samuel fifteen, where God <clears throat> uh, declares something and then he thought some way, but uh, he changes his mind because of the result of what the people did. When you see that uh, immutability and, and simplicity that follows, if if God added new knowledge. Uh, to his substance, then he wouldn't be simple. He would be compound. The knowledge would be in addition to <clears throat> to what he already had. So he's talking against simplicity. He's talking against immutability. But uh, these Calvinists and sometimes even Arminians, they re refuse to to understand or admit what Scripture is telling them. Right. So uh, here we have David Hunt pulled up, and he is a proud Christian Platonist. We'll, we'll see what he says about this. And I actually care a lot about, about the tradition. Um, I think it's a little intellectually arrogant not to care uh, about it. Um, and um, openness will, uh, there's no doubt that the, the tradition was influenced by by pagan philosophy, in particular Neoplatonism. Uh, you can't read Augustine's Confessions, for example, without, uh, uh, without you know, realizing that. Um, and openness will often claim that, that the tradition was corrupted by pagan philosophy. Whether it amounts to corruption, of course, depends on whether, whether it was a beneficent influence or, uh, or a bad influence. I tend to think, uh, uh, as a Neoplatonist myself, <laughs> I tend to think that it was a beneficent influence. 
And so right there, he's, he's admitting, yeah, there is this influence. It's, it's pretty obvious. All you have to do is read the text and you're going to see this Platonistic influence. And he's proud of it. And, you know, uh, uh, most, most of these scholars who are actual scholars, they admit these truths. It has to t you have to take a certain subset of evangelicals to start just flat out denying this. It's, it's this weird little ritual where if they admit that the Bible has been influenced by these pagan ideas or, or even uh, the Christianity, but the, the Bible does have some interaction with Plato. Uh, Paul has interaction with Plato in Colossians. But even to say that, that some of these ideas started to get adopted in the Christian church, uh, that that to them um, that 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 destroys their conception of how how this metaphysics works right uh, the church is uncorrupted and all these traditions are are steeped in actual truth there there's a definite orthodoxy and there's a definite heterodoxy that we need to disclaim and all these church councils always just just so happen to always come out on the right side of history it just so happens and so that's that's their idea. But uh, most most of these attributes that they come up with, their conception of God, even these these council debates that that are had, they're they're subsections of Platonists fighting each other over Platonistic concepts. The Arians said, "Oh, uh, Jesus is not the same substance as God." Oh, why why is that? Well, because God is simple substance, and if you have another being added to that. Now that's compounded substance. These are not biblical concerns. You're not going to find in the Bible them talking about simple substances and compound substances. You will find that in Plato. And so I'll I'll pull up Plato talking about those those concepts. Craig? Well, what was interesting to me, you said influence. What does influence mean? There's something there that was not there before. So Platonism is influencing early Christianity. He didn't necessarily say the Bible, but he said early Christianity. And yeah, Justin Martyr, uh, those early church fathers were all influenced by Plato, especially after 70 AD with the downfall of Jerusalem. And a lot of the, the Jewish believers were killed. And then uh, Christianity spread out into the, the Greek world where it the learned men were influenced by Greek Platonism. And so he admits in his own words, it's, it's, he, they were influenced. There was something there that, that wasn't there before. All right. So I'm going to share a section of Paramendes. And this is a work by Plato. And in it, he describes the conception of the one. I, I, just, I just lost the reference. It just, my computer is not... <laughs> not playing nice tonight so we'll keep going for you know, Parmenides and that's the correct way to say it the way you said it last night but uh, Parmenides uh, was a philosopher before Plato and he had certain monist tendencies he wrote about um, he had a, 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 a philosophy that wasn't necessarily in line with Plato when he wrote the book Parmenides. When Plato wrote Parmenides, he comes closer uh, to the concept of the one that the Neoplatonists picked up later. And I don't think Parmenides, a philosopher, had all, all these uh, concepts in. So we have to be careful 
to distinguish between the philosopher Parmenides and Parmenides of Plato. Right. And so uh, in my work here, this is just a draft of the book. I actually quote the real Parmenides per, uh, and uh, about being and becoming and things like that, which is which is interesting. But what's more interesting is Plato, because Plato was who everyone considered their Bible of the time. The Neoplatonist arguments were over what are the true meaning of Plato? And what they also did is they they went to the works of Aristotle to try to get insight into what Plato also believed, because sometimes Aristotle is in dialogue with Plato. It's not necessarily coming straight from Plato's work, but since there's this dialogue going on in Aristotle, they could say, oh, here's what Aristotle says Plato believed, and Aristotle's wrong, and Plato's right, uh, even though it's not coming from actual uh, works by Plato. But in uh, Paramendes, we have this discussion of the one. And we talked about this mental framework, this metaphysics, this mindset that you actually have to be in. It's, it's, it's unintuitive. And so if you start talking to a normal Christian about concepts such as something that's compound versus something that's simple, something with predicates, uh, something that is ineffable, like their eyes will glaze. They, they don't know what you're talking about because they're fundamentally in a different mindset. They're in reality, uh, you know, they're in reality where you could interact with things and, and you know what objects are. It's, they're not in this reality in which they're trying to maximize greatness through a system of metaphysics. But let's listen to a little bit of what Plato says. We're not going to read the whole thing. We'll just read, read parts of it to kind of try, try to get ourselves into that mentality. We've got, we got to put ourselves into that mindset and then it'll start making sense. If you read Augustine, and you don't understand the Platonist mindset, a lot of his phrases are just going to go over your head. When he starts talking about seeing things in his mind's eye, you'll be like, oh, he, was, he just thought about that sometime. No, he's using in, inter, inter, introspective meditation uh, to try to ascend to the one, to gain truths about the divine. That's what's going on there when he's talking about seeing things in his mind's eye. He's not just give, putting out flowery language for the heck of it. He's, he's using Platonist ascension language. And so here's Plato. If one is, the one cannot be many, and the one cannot have parts, and it cannot be a whole, because every part is part of a whole. And what is a whole? Would that not of which no part is wanting be a whole? Then in either case, the one would be made up of parts, both as being made whole, but also having parts. I'm going to just skip forward. If the one were moved, would be e either be moved in place or in nature for these are the only kinds of motion and the one when it changes and ceases to be itself cannot be any longer one it cannot therefore experience sort of motion which is change of nature <laughs> listen to this the things which are in time also partake of time must in every case be of the same age with themselves and must also become at once older and younger than themselves then does not partake of, then it does not partake of time and is not in any time and if the one is absolutely without participation in time, neither it never had become or was becoming or was at any time or is now becoming or is becoming or is or will become or will have become or will be hereafter. What he's describing here is the Neoplatonic idea of the one. The Neoplatonists didn't just come up with this out of nowhere. Plato actually has lectures that he gives to people. They're all confused. He gives them a lecture on the good. People show up to this lecture thinking that they're going to get some sort of 
lesson on what something means to be good. Well, what's a good cat? Things like that. No, what turned out to be was a lecture on the one, the ultimate principle uh, uniting this world. This, this is what Plato was teaching. The Neoplatonists pick up on this and amplify this. And so when we're talking about the Hellenization of Christianity or Platonic influence in Christianity, yeah, there might be things about like the soul and and uh, the realms that uh, Plato talks about. But for, the, for our purposes, we're talking mostly about the character, the nature of the good, the one, the ultimate cause of reality, the nature of God, because that that's what all their metaphysics flows from. This idea of who they think God is, and what properties they think God has. And, and so the, the first paragraph is simplicity, the second is immutability, and the third is the eternal now. All these concepts that are running around in today's classical theists, the Norman Geislers, the, the uh, <clears throat> Calvinistic systematic theologists, Hodge, and um, they're, they're all saying the same thing that, that Plotinus is saying, Plotinus is saying right now. And so it's, it's not biblical. It doesn't come. There's no part of those concepts in scripture. So JR asks, I've asked before what sort of natural knowledge of God can be obtained. You seem to want to reject anything Platonic or Aristotelian in terms, but I want to know what the pagans had access to. Well, Paul talks about our, our knowledge of God. We get knowledge of God through the things created and the things seen. You could see God's character, but even going hiking, you could go see God's character. You could see it God's character and things about him and the way he interacts with the world, uh, and uh, especially the things that he's done throughout history. He's always pointing to his character in the Bible, things he's done throughout history as evidence of his character, who he is in the present. Look at what I've done, then you know who I am, and for that reason, you should uh, worship me. You should be affiliated with me. When... So I'm not sure if that answers your question, uh, what exactly you're talking about, but again, the biblical authors didn't have access to Platonic or Aristotelian categories of knowledge. It's just not present in the Bible. They were just they were just realists. They're basically presentists, and they're basically uh, what we would consider materialists. That everything is quote unquote material. They probably wouldn't use those words. That's probably their idea. Yeah, in Romans one, when we say we have natural knowledge of God's um, eternality and divine nature. When, when Paul says eternality, he means God's always existed from the first and he's existing now and he will exist in the future. It's not the eternal now of, of Augustine and Plotinus that there is no present past. God sees everything happening as if it's happening in the present time. That, kind, that concept is, is not there. And then divine nature, yeah, God made everything. God looks over things. He reigns over everything. He can come down when he wants to, and he can change things. In uh, Plotinus and, and Augustine, uh, God made everything at, at one time in some type of timeless eternity, and he has no ability to come down now and do anything different than he established in some eternal decree and timeless. And, and if you say, God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men, and uh, a Calvinist, a Plot, a Plot, someone that's a Neoplatonist, they say God can't look down. He can't acquire new information. So, the natural attributes, the the, the natural 
revelation that we have about God is contrary uh, to these Platonic representations. Yeah, so here, here's Plotinus. So Plotinus is a Neoplatonist who existed around the third century before the time of Augustine. He's a disciple of Ammonius Sactus with origin of Alexandria. They're, they're kind of in the same time frame going on. And uh, he refines a school of Platonism which takes dominance. And here is what he writes about God. He says, once you have uttered the good, now the good is his conception of God. God is the one, God is uh, the first principle, God is the good. He says, add no further thought, any addition, and in proportion to that addition, you have introduced deficiency. So since God is simple, as simple means you have no parts, that means you have no predicates, there's no distinctions within yourself. So let's say God's knowledge can't be uh, a series of of knowledge statements. It can't be a series of propositions that God knows. His knowledge is actually a simple knowledge. And that, that knowledge is going to be equal to all God's other attributes. Everything is, is one and can't be separated or identified. If you can't identify it, you're adding deficiency in his words because you're creating parts, right? God, God has to be eternally simple. And so in that sense, you can't actually use predicates of God. We'll see this language reoccur in Christian fathers as well, who use the same type of arguments. And they'll say any predicates we do use, it's kind of like condescension type of language that doesn't actually apply to God. It applies to him kind of. Uh, Philo will say things like this, Philo of Alexandria. Um, but uh, it doesn't doesn't quite apply because he God doesn't have predicates. It says, once you've uttered the good, add no further thought, any addition, in proportion to that addition, you introduce a deficiency. Do not even say that it has intellection. You would be dividing it. It would become duality. Intellect and the good. The good has no need of the intellectual principle, which, on the contrary, needs it, and attaining it is shaped into the goodness and becomes perfect by it. The form thus received, sprung from the good, brings it to likeness with the good. And so in Platonism, the world is spawned from a reflection of the one. The the one doesn't create it because creating causes parts. It, it creates a, a time bound events. It, it can't have these types of predicates, and so reality has to kind of spawn from a reflection against the one. Whereas in Calvinism, reality is a maximal reflection of God's goodness that doesn't give anything back to God. God can't have any dependencies on the world because that would violate his simplicity. Now, Calvinism does accept simplicity and it's part of their standard metaphysics and it's hit or miss what else they add to that. But it's some pretty good books on that or anything by James Dozel, who talks about this uh, Augustinian concept that all that's in God is God meaning that there's no parts within God and all of God's substance is the same substance. There's there's not multiple substances. There's not multiple predicates because then you're creating duality in God and then there's more than one God. And then the other arguments go like if, if there are parts in God, then whatever's the most simple part is actually God rather than the multiple part being. It's a composite being. And so it, it's it's a different mindset. This, again, this mindset's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't argue like this. The Bible's not talking about this. When the Bible says God doesn't change, it's not talking about 
pure simplicity. It's not talking about God being non-composite and partless in the idea of uh, ineffable simplicity. It's not talking about that. It's just saying his character doesn't change. He's not going to destroy Israel, who he's already promised to, to bless. In that way, he doesn't change. He's not just going to turn his back on his people. And so the proof texting for these ideas are, are pretty straight. And uh, you'll see that through Philo and Augustine, the proof text that they do use, it has to be super spiritualized. And then they have to take parts of the Bible that they don't like and basically say, if anyone believes what this actually says, those people are heretics, they're evil, and they're stupid. There's, there's a lot of name-calling anyone who actually believes things like Genesis 6. So go pull up Philo on Genesis 6. Go pull up Augustine on Genesis 6. Go pull up Calvin on Genesis 6. They basically all say the same thing. This is baby talk language. This is condescension. And people who actually believe this are stupid and heretics. Don't don't listen to them. Since, since the Calvinists believe that everything is created in some timeless eternal act, that God receives no new information, then all his knowledge has to be noetic. It has to be a, at one time, at one instance. It can't be discursive. He can't actually make a reasoned judgment. He can't look upon something and change his mind. He, he would not have the ability of, of discursive thought that all of us have that that would would seem normal to God. And it, it is a slander to God uh, to, to say that he doesn't have discursive knowledge, that he isn't able to reason. This is this is not the God described in the Bible. Yeah, so here, here's another Plotinus quote. He says, even calling it the first, we mean no more than to express that it's the most absolutely simplex. It is the self-sufficing only in the sense that it is, is not the, of that compound nature which would make it dependent upon any constituent. So Calvinists will turn to the Bible and it says, God does not depend on anything with human hands. And they'll say, see, the, this is my Neoplatonistic idea of self-sufficiency, which doesn't, in their mind, that doesn't mean that God doesn't need our food to eat, to subsist himself. They, they think that any dependency, if God had any relation or interaction with the world, that would create a dependency and that would add to God's simplicity and make him a compound being. And so they'll, they'll change the language of what Paul's actually talking about to make it mean the Neoplatonic categories that are just not found in the text. It's, it's, it's one of the things they do if they, they find a proof text and they just talk about that proof text. And if they talk long enough about their proof text, then apparently it means whatever they say. But in context, there's nothing to suggest Platonistic categories. God's not in need of our houses we build him. That doesn't mean that he is absolute self-sufficient, simplex, self-contained, pure actuality. The the Greeks simplexes a plus. It means uh, to be simple. That word is used two times in the, in the New Testament to refer to having clear vision. So the New Testament that knows nothing of their definition of the word simple. And a lot of times Calvinists will say, oh, well, omnipresence and uh, you know omniscience and all that's not in the Bible, but we know that it's a characteristic of the Bible. But it is not. Those words are not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't. Uh, profess those philosophical views, and all these categorical uh, distinctions that they make of ineffability, immutability, simplicity, 
all these categories are non-existent in the Bible. Yeah, Hudson says, would you say that time space is already assumed before God created heaven and earth? Uh, the Jews didn't have a conception of time as a thing. Time's not a thing. Uh, you, you see, you don't see time travel. You don't see time being sped up or slow down. You do see the sun being uh, hung in the in the in the atmosphere to, to prolong days, but there's no time travel. Time is not a thing that you could go back and forth. That something that's created. They're basically operational presentists. Again, these are not categories that they conceived of. They're just there's normal people like you and I. They're not having debates about weird metaphysics about space time. In Genesis one, a probably a better translation is the Masoretic text, which uses. Uh, the punctuation the Masoretic text adds phrases that a little bit differently. It says, when God began creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was form and without void. And then God said, let there be light. And so it makes it a dependent clause rather than God's first act. And another way to read that, even if you don't want to translate it as that dependent clause, you could read it as a title of a section. So this, the, this is when God began to create the world. And then these are the things that happened, which make up God's creation. So Genesis 1-1 is probably best not conceptualized as God acting. It's, it's not describing an act of God. Rather, it's introducing you to a section which is going to tell you how God is acting. So pre-existing Genesis 1-1 is, is a chaos earth. Pre-existing Genesis 1-1 mm -hmm. are angels and uh, anything else outside of outside of what's described there being created. And so the angels watch creation in Job, and we have conversation with God and other actors, presumably, within the Genesis 1 narrative, and these are probably the divine council. So these things pre-exist the Genesis 1 in, in the Masoretic, Masoretic text, which is probably the better translation. And the Spirit of God is floating over the waters. So the Spirit of God has location, it has place, and is separate from the Father and the Son. So their ideas of simplicity are completely dissolved in the first chapter of Genesis. So now I'm going to pull up the reference to when Augustine's talking about his, his own conversion. So we talked a little bit about church fathers such as Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is a, a Gentile. He's not coming from Jewish traditions. He's he's not taught by the apostles. Instead, he's coming from basically a Platonist tradition. He, he He's a philosopher, and he goes through various stages of philosophy until he settles on Platonism, and then he converts to Christianity. And then what's his argument to uh, Typhro mm -hmm. the Jew? He says that you guys believe that God have, has parts. God doesn't have parts. God is simplex. And so what what he's arguing there, the direct context is the Jews actually thought God had a body. And, and so uh, you'll, you'll find the church fathers arguing against the Jews on this specific point. You'll find Clement of Alexandria saying, all these Jews think God has a body. Uh, Justin Martyr says these Jews think God has a body. It can't be true because we have this mental conception of God, we'll say, uh, a simplex conception in which God can't have parts. And body parts are the most obvious parts for any compound creature. Uh, he doesn't, Justin Martyr doesn't get into the other ideas of parts, but it might be safe to assume that he did adopt 
other Platonic values of simplicity. And so Justin Martyr is one of them. Clement of Alexandria is definitely coming from, coming from a Platonist perspective. You have people like Origen of Alexandria who thought very highly of Plato. Um, and then you eventually get to Augustine. And Augustine's friends send him letters saying, hey, your works are fantastic. They're full of Plato. They're full of Plotinus. And they're full of Jesus. Uh, these are great things. We love your work. I'm, I'll, I'll go find that quote right now. So hang tight. Well, in the Confessions, he, he writes, <clears throat> When I was about 20, a certain writing of Aristotle had been put into my hands entitled The Ten Categories. And then he says, uh, What profit was that to me, supposing that these ten predicates covered everything that exists? I mistakenly attempted to understand you, my God, in terms of you who are wonderfully simple and changeless. So the ten categories, the ten categories of art, of Aristotle are substance, quantity, quality, relation, location, time, position, habit, action, and passion. All those categories describe reality, the substances that we have, you know. What is quantity? There's one Craig Fisher, quality, he has certain quality. There's a relationship that he has. All those things which describe reality and substances as they exist are denied of God. It's virtually a, a denial of the reality of God. So Jr. Uh, he comments, "I'm mostly confused about how that you understand God, <laughs> how you understand God as the source of all things, which is a very biblical concept. That's true. Dallas Theological Seminary. You could go sign up for a free course on Genesis. These are Bible-believing Calvinists, and their professor says." Genesis 1-1 is not about the first creation act. And he's, he's just a normal Bible-believing Calvinist. He'll say, I could still believe God created all things. There's other verses for that. You just don't have to. Genesis 1-1 is just not it, though. It's, it's not your proof text for God creating all things. And he's absolutely right. And so God is the source of all things. Yeah, God created everything, which is very biblical concept. Correct, but not Genesis 1-1. That's not what's being described there. Was he always composed of various parts? Th this talk about parts are not Semitic value sets. These, the, these categorically are, are not part of their conceptions. Um, they do have conceptions of divine fragmentation, uh, which God could be in various bodies and various places at various points of time simultaneously with various um, mental uh, di divergence between the actors and you can find categories like that but it's that's not a question of parts versus partlessness versus simplicity versus first principles categorically they don't have access to these value sets and for, so for us to as moderners take these value sets and try to apply them to the bible as if number one as if they're intuitive they're not intuitive they're just made up some guy some guys sitting in a room making these value sets up they're not intuitive, uh, they're not biblical, and uh, they, they internally, uh, they're inconsistent. Uh, you, you, you see that when metaphysicians have pretty detailed arguments among themselves about these principles, the fact that this debate is raging about the proper metaphysics of maximizing God as a maximally great being means that it's an incredibly subjective field. There, there's no truth to this. These people just made this up. It's not a biblical concept. And so even if Platonism is true, 
um, that would preclude the Bible from being true because that just wasn't part of their mindset, their value set. They didn't think like that. That's not who God was. And if you try to explain that that's who God is to them, they would they would definitely reject that. That's that's not who God is. Yeah, the idea of simplicity is related to uh, the the idea of evolution. You know, can we get back to a simple substance and we're all substance created from that? And so they, they go back in time and they try to say, well, what what is the basic substance? Well, is it earth, air, fire, and water? Or is it atoms? And then we go back and try. You know, there's a, a certain concept in, um, in, in even um, science called irreducible complexity that... Uh, you can't get a more simple substance to, for them all to come together like the function of an eye. They all have to be present at the same time. And, and God has that irreducible complexity. There's not a simplicity that you can go back and, and, and take and God can be more simple than, than, than before. So there, God was was always capable. He's always in he, uh, three persons. He was always communicating be, between those three persons and you can't say, well, there's a time when, when God was more simple or without these these different, uh, I, I don't like calling them attributes, but God was, um, God is always capable of appearing in, in many forms and in various ways. And so it's it's not a question of, of going back to something more simple. That's, that's not describing the reality of the day by going back and trying to find something more simple. And so John Fisher and I have a podcast uh, called, like, I think it's called The Theory of Everything, and we, when, in which we discuss the problems of categories. Plato had this idea that there's a realm of the forms, and in this realm of forms, every object has some sort of perfect object or perfect representation. Anything that changes is a degradation from those perfect forms, which themselves are a mirror of this perfect being. And so every, everything has like a corresponding object. But the reality of this is that we don't operate like this. Like you, you ask someone to, to define a cat, they'll say, oh, a small mammal with four legs and furry, show them a picture of a dog. Then they have to go even, even further into those categorizations. Uh, and it's, it's very, it, it's, we, we can't, we're not very good at categorizing objects. We're able to accurately and quickly and concisely give broad pictures of what things are, but going into the minutia and making minutia difference, differentiation, it's, it's not our strong suit as human beings because we just don't operate with the data on that level. The data doesn't exist on that level to have distinctive objects with those distinctive properties that are able to be categorized as such. And so you'll see this in like, for example, the ship of thesis, the ship of thesis is a famous example in which there is a ship and it's replaced part by part over the course of, I don't know, decades or something like that. At the end of that, is that ship the same ship? Every single part has been replaced. At what point was that ship, not that ship anymore and a new ship. And these are things with open-ended questions because again, our categories are, are not purposeful and useful for describing such phenomena, they're good at broad generalizations. They're, they're good at quick snapshots to quickly communicate essential information to other parties such that they could get a broad understanding of what you're communicating rather than uh, rather than all, all the finite details. It's, it's just, it's not how we communicate. But we'll turn to Augustine here 
and Augustine's talking about the Platonists, and we could learn about what he took from the Platonists. Uh, Augustine in his Confessions, uh, it's it's he, he's he brags about it. Uh, he he likes the Platonists. Uh, the people of the time like the Platonists, and so throughout his work, you could just go grab like a big big uh, like a compilation of all his translated works and just search for Plato and Plotinus and the Platonists, and you're going to find a lot of positive references because he actually really. He prides himself on being a Platonist and coming from a Platonist background and all the things that it gave him that he did not have access to before. He says, by reading these books of the Platonists, I had been prompted to look for truth as something incorporeal. I, I caught sight of your invisible nature. Oh, how did he catch sight? Oh, his, his introspective ascension. As it is known through your creatures. I was certain both that you are and then you are infinite though without extent in terms of either space or limited or limited. Remember, these are Platonist categories. God can't be associated with time. God can't be associated with space. These things cause distinctions. These things compound God. These mean that God is not perfect. He says, I read your works, your Platonist works, and these are great things that I, that I, I learned. I learned all these things from you. I was sure that you, uh, I'm sure that you, it was you who you truly are, since you're always the same, varying in neither part nor motion. Huh. Uh, immutability, simplicity. But how could I expect that the Platonist books would ever teach me charity? So the one thing he got from the Platonists is love or charity or a Christ figure. Uh, the, the big debate between the Gnostics and the Platonists, this was an intra-Platonistic debate, is, is how you get the ascension accomplished. How does a good Platonist ascend to the one? Oh, introspective meditation, disregard of everything physical. Uh, Augustine adds Christ, Jesus. Jesus is that enabling spark, which allows you to transcend to the various levels of existence. He bridges that gap. This quote-unquote God-man, remember, uh, he he still believes in simplicity, and so his idea of Trinity is that Jesus was basically a creature in time parodying out the acts, just like the dove that landed on Jesus during the baptism. It's, it's like a pre-programmed creature, but it represents God and enables us to transcend the levels of existence to extend towards God. That's 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 the purpose of Christ. He says, this is what Christianity gives us. He says, I believe it was by your will that I came across these books before I studied the scriptures. He says, I'm happy as a Platonist before I came to the Bible. Why? Because he wished me to always remember the impression they made on me. For if I had not come across these books until after I'd been formed in the mold of your holy scriptures, he's saying, if I read the Bible first and then came across the Platonist books, what's going to happen? He's going to he's going to quit. He says, and learned your love through familiarity with them. The Plato's teaching might have swept me from my foothold on the solid ground of piety. And I might have thought it possible for a man who read nothing but the Plato's books to derive the same spirit from them alone. Basically, he's saying all his metaphysics he's getting from the Plato's, except for one thing, except for charity, except for Jesus. That's the one thing Christianity is giving him. And he thanks God that he became a Plato's before he became a studied Christian, because then he could apply the Bible to Platonism rather than being pulled out of the Bible and into Platonism. Before Augustine became a Christian, he practiced the ascent. The ascent to the one requires <clears throat> that you do away with the physical, that you try to become as close to God as possible. So what it means is you do meditation, and through meditation, 
you empty your mind of discursive reasoning. When you empty your mind of discursive reasoning, you get this flash and you're able to see God. And Augustine said he saw God before he was a Christian and that God was immutable. That's what God is expecting from Platonism. But the Christian God, the Christian God is the God who comes down from heaven, who, who gave his son, who gave revelation. When we look at scripture, we have to use discursive reasoning to understand who God is because he gave us the Bible to read. We use discursive reasoning when we read, when we understand who God is. But Augustine, uh, he wanted to empty his mind so that he was subject to all kinds of evil forces. And he did empty his mind and he saw this immutable, quote, God of the Platonists, but that's not the God of Scripture. So here I got, uh, I'm getting feedback. I, I got a video on the Platonist invention of transcendence. This transcendence principle that we've been talking about, this idea of God being pure actuality, perfectly simplex, is a Platonist invention. And our friend here in this lecture, the full lecture is worth listening to, but he talks about how Augustine, uh, he, he encountered this and became a good Platonist. So let's hear what he says. And it's only the Platonists and then some Christian Platonists who begin to make that thinking change. So for Augustine, the very notion of an immaterial God was novel and arresting and life-changing. In fact, he tells us that he only got that idea from reading the books of the pagan philosophers, the Platonists. So Augustine's failure to grasp the notion of transcendent reality was more than just a function of his Manichaean theology. It was also a product of his North African Christian past, where the theology he had encountered when he was young lacked the sophisticated transcendentalism of Ambrose and his circle of Christian or Catholic intellectuals in Milan. I think this fact really bears pondering. Augustine's story makes no sense unless this materialist interpretation of Christianity was so widespread that a well-educated North African rhetorician could, on his own testimony, reach his early 30s before encountering the very idea of transcendence. Let me make this point now by quoting a Jesuit, Father Roland Teske from Marquette. Prior to Augustine, at least in Western Christianity, there was no philosophical concept of incorporeal being, of being that is whole, wherever it is. Yeah, so that's a very powerful quote. Now, Augustine, he lived his whole life without this knowledge of Platonistic values, and it's only Platonism that teaches him. Most Christians at that time did not have these conceptions. Uh, there is one instant recounted in which someone who's taking after Origen, one of the bishops claims that God has no body and the people rise up and riot the normal people, because they believe that this is just downright heresy, that God is not, not corporeal. And so you'll, you'll see this divide in the layman Christians of the time and their clergy, the people who give us the books that, that come down to us. And then we come under this false assumption that this was ubiquitous. Everyone believed the same things that uh, Origen or Augustine or Ambrose or Simplicanus, what these people are writing. But the truth is that layman 
have widely rejected it. It's just it's just like the, the Greek society. The laymen still would be worshiping maybe the Greek pantheon with those conceptions, but it's their philosophers who are introducing this these new theories. It's their philosophers who are pressing things like Platonism into the mainstream, and it's being adopted by the elite, which is different than the lay people. The lay people are not Platonists. The lay people don't think like this. Same thing in Christianity. What, what's really interesting is that the Catholics know and understand all these things. They, they admit them because, you know, their church fathers, they're as authoritative as the Bible. So when they look at Augustine, they're not under the illusions that Augustine wasn't a Platonist or wasn't practicing certain aspects of the Neoplatonists. The, the Catholics look at it and say, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's what's happening. So if you read the three biographies of of Augustine that is predominant in the, in the literature right now, all of them will admit that Augustine was a Neoplatonist and had Neoplatonist ideas because they're written by Catholics that they have nothing to lose. The only one denying that Augustine was a Neoplatonist seems to be the Evangelical Church, which doesn't know Augustine very well, but the Catholics, they have libraries. Augustine has over a million written words, and they have libraries both in Latin and in English that reference Augustine. They've got all kinds of research papers. So if you want to know anything about Augustine, um, re read what the Catholics have to say about him. Yeah, so Dylan writes, uh, he, he quotes Malachi 3.6, which we've already discussed a little bit on this podcast. This is the idea that I, the Lord, do not change. And this is a common proof text by the Christian Platonists, and they claim that just the first part of the verse, you cut the verse in half, you just take the first half, and that first half is somehow talking about God being immutable or simplex or without parts. But, you know, you'll find phrases like that throughout the Bible. God says, the people do not change. Uh, what's he talking about? Uh, he, he's not talking about, well, they have metaphysical properties by which that they are simplex and don't have parts that aren't in relation to each other and outside. That's that's not what he's talking about. When he says the people don't change, it's a complaint because their character is uh, not open for rebuke and reformation. He's unable to get through to them. And then often he punishes them because they don't change. And so context is important for understanding mm -hmm. phrases, especially short phrases. And remember, none of these biblical authors had any of these categories whatsoever in their minds. And none of the context of any of their proof texts, any of the Calvinist proof texts or classical theist proof texts, none of the contexts of any of these are going to talk about these categories as if they're things. It's not like if you turn to Augustine, and Augustine will talk about a verse, and then he'll talk about his categories, and he'll talk about those categories in depth. Nothing like that ever happens in the Bible. Why? Because this, those categories are just not theologically available to them. They're not interacting with these categories. They don't care about these categories. They're not using these categories. They're just talking like normal people. The people don't change. Oh, that just means that the people are, they, they, they're, they're stubborn. They're stubborn. In the context of Malachi 6, what is happening is Israel is rejecting God, and God's angry, but God has an enduring promise that stretches throughout the Bible to make of Abraham many nations. And so a lot of times in the Bible, God wants to kill all of Israel, just kill them all, uh, but he remembers and recalls this promise, and then he, he needs to be remain true to this promise. And so that's what it says here. 
He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Okay. Therefore, okay, so this non-changing is leading to some sort of consequences. Therefore, you, children of Jacob, are not consumed. Well, God consumes a lot of people. So uh, what's that supposed to mean? It's like God doesn't have parts. God is simplex. simplex therefore, the people aren't destroyed. That, does, that doesn't logically follow. How about I, the Lord, am not going to change my promises. I'm true to my character. I don't change. My character doesn't change. I'm not going to forsake you guys. Therefore, you're not destroyed. The very next verse says, return to me and I will return to you. So this is not about absolute simplicity, uh, partlessness, changelessness. It's about character. He, he invites them to return. And then he says, I'm going to return in response. If you return to me, I'll return to you. It's a give and take. Uh, we can work this out. Uh, return to me, repent, so I, I can be true to my promises. It's interesting that John the Baptist, when when the Pharisees come to him and they think God is forced to remain true to his promises, he says, don't, don't feel safe in being children of Abraham. God is smarter than you. He can remain true to his promise by using innovative means. He can make new children of Abraham from these rocks. The funniest thing about this Malachi 3 reference, and I point it out every single time, is that the last part of Malachi 3, God writes a brand new book in heaven. Why? Because righteous people who love God are very concerned that God might come back. And when God is cleaning, cleaning, the cleansing the temple, killing the bad guys, he might accidentally kill them as well. And so what's their theological mindset? These are people who love God. They worship God. They're afraid. Uh, they think God might make a mistake and accidentally kill them. And so God reassures them. And God's in heaven. And there's an angel. And God has the angel write a book of remembrance with their names in it, just so that this, this off chance thing is not going to happen. A brand new book is written, never before written, a brand new book written with their names in it, just to, to ward against this contingency in which people are accidentally killed by God. It says, oh. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Because God listens to prayers. He gets knowledge and information from outside himself. God God receives our prayers. And so that right there is a violation of simplicity when God has dependencies on the world. If God can gain from outside himself, that's open theism. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. It's there, there's always a direct object of change. You know, in First Samuel 15, God changes his mind about making Saul king. And then at the end of the chapter, the narrator said God changed his mind about making Saul king. In the middle of the chapter, it says God does not change his mind. And he doesn't change his mind about changing his mind to have Saul king. So there's always a direct object. That change my mind is always limited. In this context, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. It's not something that you can just abstract and make into some metaphysical attribute of God that never changes and it's applied in every situation. There's an object to that. The object is his covenant with the sons of Israel, that he's not going to change that, that he's eventually going to restore Israel. But as far as Israel being consumed, they were consumed greatly in 586 with the fall of the second of the first temple, and then with the fall of the the second temple in 70 AD, there was 
a whole lot of consuming going on, but the, the basic promise is that God will again restore Israel and will come back to Israel. Those basic promises, uh, he's not going to change his mind about, but he changes his mind about a lot of things. Yeah, th think of the narrative structure that the classical theist has to give to something like First Samuel 15. So it starts out, God says, I, I've repented of making Saul king. And they say, oh, that's just condescending language. Okay. Um, you know, Saul and Samuel get into it. Saul Saul promises to reform himself. He, he's, he's so very sorry. Uh, he wants God to give him back the kingdom. Uh, he's sad that God has withdrawn it from him. And then in the classical mindset, in this narrative, Samuel pauses to give Saul a brief metaphysics lesson. Like, Saul, you don't understand. God is simplex and doesn't have parts. And those parts can't change. And uh, there's there's no change in arrangements of, of substance. That, that doesn't mean anything. That, that, that would not that would not go towards the narrative that uh, Samuel's presenting here. It doesn't make any sense because God does these things all the time, takes away kingdoms and gives them back. There, there's no fundamental property of metaphysical inability to change that would lead to this being a useful dialogue. It, the, the, the entire narratives don't make sense when you plug in what they think these proof texts are saying. It just You just read it and say... Does it make sense that he stops to give this weird mini sermon metaphysical rant? And then Saul's like, what, what, what just happened? It's, just, it doesn't make sense. And Samuel doesn't think that either. Cause Samuel cried all night to the Lord. He pleaded to the Lord all night over Saul to keep Saul as King. So Samuel thought that God changed his mind, even though, God, he was supposed to go to Samuel and tell him the kingdom's been taken away from you. Samuel thought that God change, could change his mind. He tried to change God's mind. All right, so I think, uh, let's see what I got here. Here is, I think this is Jerome talking. And Jerome's talking about origin of Alexander. We talked a little about Augustine. It's pretty clear Augustine was very heavily influenced by Platonism. He admits it throughout his work. He sings Platonist praises. The conceptions. We'll pull up. We'll pull up Augustine talking about ineffability and simplicity. It's the same thing as Platonism. The exact same concept. Origen also had very similar ideas that he got from Plato. It says now the perjury and lying enter into the mysteries in reference to Origen's idea that. One does not reveal deeper mysteries to initiates, but tells them falsehood. So Origen actually had this idea, of basically like the mystery cults. And the mystery cults were ancient, secretive societies that centered around various deities. And uh, they had ascension rites and spiritual ascensions to spiritual truths that they would reveal only to uh, certain initiates at certain levels. And Origen adopts this type of terminology in, in his discipleship of others and basically says it's okay to lie to people but but the initiates you give them the further spiritual truths they're the ones that you reveal the deepest mysteries to it's also interesting that uh you know um it was uh alexander the great he platonizes the known world he takes israel from persia 
institutes Greek learning, Greek cities, and there's an apocryphal, maybe real letter from his instructor, who is Aristotle, who is the pupil of Plato. And he basically says the, the same thing. Oh, it's, it's from Alexander the Great to Aristotle. And he says, Aristotle, I read your metaphysics and you're, you're revealing all these initiate truths to everyone. You're just telling them these are for special initiates. And Aristotle's response is, oh, if they don't understand our metaphysics, they're not going to understand what I'm saying here anyway. So it's, it's, it's really, really is coded for those initiatives. But this, this is a pretty common thing that they do. And so Origen also adopted that. And this is Jerome complaining about him because Origen's kind of falling out of favor with some Christians at that time. Eusebius was pro-Origen. Jerome was kind of anti-Origen. Some of his thoughts and ideas they were condemning, and some of some people were defending him. It just depends. It, it kind of falls downhill from there until he's revitalized by the church in modern times. He says if there's a common bond that, for, that appears between them, from the six books of origins miscellanies in which he harmonizes the christian doctrine with conceptions of plato and so there, there's a pretty much a contemporary of origin talking about his association with plato and Porphyry, of course the neoplatonist we already talked about he also talks about this he, he critically talks about christians who will use plato to interpret the bible and his complaint is, these Christians aren't taking the Bible seriously. The Bible says something. The Christians don't care. They discard it in favor of ideas of Plato. And you can read that, actually, in Augustine. When Augustine's talking about the Bible, he says, the Bible was absurd until Ambrose told me to read it spiritually. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Meaning you can't read what it says and take it literally. You have to interpret it in light of your Platonism, which they're very happy he records this in his confessions. They were very happy he came across those books of the Platonists, which didn't lead him astray, but led him towards the truth of Christ. They're all Platonists. They're using Platonism to interpret the Bible. Origen was a Platonist. He believed in the descent. So he believed that all spirits came from the same place. In Plato, you have the one, the intellect, and the spirit. And the spirit causes the physical things. And there was a descent. So Everybody got a place in the world. The rich kids, they were better in a previous life, and so on the descent that God was bestowing upon them as a favor. Men, they were better in life than women, and if you you were lower in life, then, then uh, God made you into a woman. And then uh, he believed that everything ascended back to the one. So a lot of times, some Christians will say that, he was a universalist. He believed that everybody would be saved. No, he, he believed in the ascent to the one. That was a platonic idea that all spirits uh, flow back to the one. And uh, Origen got the idea that there are different ways to interpret the Bible. There's the literal, uh, there's the spiritual, and then there's the allegorical, and then perhaps even an anagogic about last times. And so when you look at the Bible, um, you don't have to take what God says as true. You can have a spiritual or allegorical interpretation anytime you want. And he frequently did that. Augustine adopted that. That was Augustine's primary way to interpret scripture. So this Platonism um, was came from, a lot of it came from origin. All right, we got uh, Augustine pulled up again. We're looking at his ideas of simplicity and ineffability. And he writes, 
in in the in the city of God, he writes, "There's one soul good, which is simple and therefore unchangeable, and that is God. By this good, all good things were created, but they are not simple. For that reason, they are changeable." Yeah. And so uh, this is this is the paper that I'm reading. He writes, "We notice here that Augustine's doctrine of divine simplicity bears a close relationship to the immutable character of God. Indeed, God's simplicity constitutes the ground for his changeless disposition. This is because a simple being." quote, cannot lose any attribute it possesses. Created entities, on the other hand, quote, may be deprived of what they have and adopt other qualities at different times. Remains for us to investigate why such a scenario holds true. But it's enough to point out that for Augustine, change by definition involves addition or subtraction, if you will, of some quality or characteristic identified with or residing within a particular being. However, since this behavior is inadmissible within a simple being, and since God is in fact simple, it follows that divine existence cannot undergo change. And I'll, I'll pull up the quote where he's talking about God's all God's attributes being identical with each other. This is part of simplicity. God can't have discrete attributes that are different than each other. So God's immutability is the same as God's omniscience, is the same as God's omnipotence, is, is the same as God's eternity. All God's attributes are sim is simple. They're the same. We might give them distinctions, but those are our, our own mental distinctions because we are we are fallen creatures. I'll pull that quote up if you give me a second. This is this is the apophatic description of God that God has no um, predicates. Anyone that says God has no predicates is taking that from the Platonic world, and it means that the ten categories of Aristotle is as being in time, place, location, all, all those ideas that you would normally associate with a physical substance, God can possess none of those things because he's incorporeal. All right, so uh, here's some of those quotes. When I was about 20, a certain writing of Aristotle had been put in my hands, so we talked about this quote a little bit. What prophet had it been to me, supposing that these 10 predicates covered everything that exists, I mistakenly attempted to understand even you, my God, in terms of them, who you who are wonderfully simple and changeless, imagining that you were subject of your greatness and beauty, and that those attributes herein in you as they are in their subject, as might a material thing. I did not realize that you are yourself identical with your greatness and beauty. All God's attributes have to be the same as one another. That's that's part of divine simplicity. It, it, it's, it is a mindset. And so if you're not in the mindset of Platonism, you're going to fundamentally misunderstand what they're talking about and how their system operates and how, how it works together. And then you're going to misunderstand when they're trying to describe concepts and you try, might try to make nuances that they themselves do not make because their system doesn't allow for that. So when Augustine has ideas of evil as negation, that flows from his idea of God can't be the source of evil because that would be imperfection. And so negation has to be just a negation of what is good. That evil cannot exist without goodness because God is the source of that goodness, but evil exists. It only exists as negation. If you look at these categories, all these categories are said not to exist by the classical theists, but God has all these qualities. He's quantity. He's three persons. He's quality. He's loving and just. He has relation. He has relationship to us. We are sons of God. 
He has location and he's in heaven. God in time, <clears throat> he has different dispensations, handles people differently. He, he has a position like the spirit was floating above the waters. He does action. He actually takes action. He doesn't do everything from the beginning, but he takes action and he has passion. He feels emotion. He feels love. All these things are denied of God in the by the classical theologians, but all these all these attributes are in the Bible and describe God. Yeah, Andrew writes, it sounds like nothing good came out of Alexandria. That is the case I'm trying to make. If we turn to the earliest examples of scholarship within within Alexandria, that would be Astrilobus. And Astrilobus, he's famous for, uh, I'm trying to pull it up here. He's famous for being a quote unquote, maybe he was a translator of the LXX, but uh, his existent works is him complaining about ideas of God having parts. And uh, he's, he's around maybe 180 to 145 BC. He might be referenced in the books of the Maccabees, uh, but here's his specific uh, quotes. He's talking to a king. He says, I would entreat you to take the interpretation in a natural way and to hold fast the fitting conception of God. That the fitting conception of God takes precedence over what the Bible actually says. So God can't go down somewhere. He says, and hold fast to the fitting conception of God and not fall off into the idea of a fabulous anthropomorphic constitution. When they use the word anthropomorphic, they mean people who literally believe God has parts, hands, feet. The anthropomorphs are not, that's not an idiom. It's a people group who believe God has a body. Anthropomorphic conceptions. He's saying, don't believe these people about uh, their idea that God has, has parts. For lawgiver Moses, when he wishes to express his meaning in various ways, announces a certain arrangement of nature and preparations for mighty deeds by adopting phrases applicable to other things. I mean, things outward and visible. So it's condescending language. So this condescending language already exists in Alexandria uh, about uh, the second century BC, right? It, it it's already exists. It already pre-exists Christ. So the Hellenization process, it started, it started, we already talked about Alexander the Great, around 300 BC or so, he swept through and Hellenized all these, these cities. He was a pupil of Aristotle, who was a pupil of Plato, and he implemented Greek learning. In Alexandria, it sounds like Alexander the Great, right? Alexandria, Alexander founded maybe like 30 to 40 cities and name them all Alexander. In Alexandria, this just variations of his name. And Alexandria in Egypt was one of them. And it was a hotbed of Gnosticism and paganism and uh, different ideas flowing around. You'll you'll see various Gnostics also coming out of Alexandria. It, it's it's like it's a, a Gnostic Mecca, I would say. And it, it's not like Origen and uh, Augustine were any different. It's not like Clement was any different than these other Gnostics. That They're just different flavors of Gnostics, right? Augustine had his special secret knowledge, this special enabling to know secret truths, this uh, inward enlightening for ascension upwards. They're all Gnostics. These are intra-Gnostic disputes. And Plotinus even gets in on it and argues with the Gnostics within his Aeneads. Why? because they're arguing the same metaphysics. They're on the same playing field. They're arguing the same things. Just one of them's coming from a 
Christian perspective arguing Platonism, and one's coming from a, a secular Platonistic perspective. Uh, they're they're co-combatants in the same realm. That they have the same priors, and so they could have these debates. Yeah, when you look at Alexandria, you have a lot of Gnostic teaching there. <clears throat> and the Gnostics, as far as we're concerned about who God is and what he does, they were very, very close to, <clears throat> to the Platonists, who were very close to Augustine's uh, North African theology. And, and Ambrose, when he was preaching in Rome, was, was pretty much a Neoplatonist. He, it, the influence was 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 filled in, in the church in the early Catholic Church and continues to this day in, in Calvinism. Calvin was a Augustinian. He quotes Augustine a lot, and even Luther was an Augustinian monk. So you see these Neoplatonist influences even today, and even in our major religions today. And, and so I think we could kind of close off with talking a little bit about normal Jewish conceptions of God and the Bible during the time of Christ. They're, they're not all Hellenized. Uh, they might have Hellenization, but they have not adopted the Hellenistic perspective of God. So the author of Hebrews, who might be Apollinus from Alexandria, he actually might be from Alexandria. But even he talks about God in heaven watching the world. And we could turn to Josephus, who's just a normal Pharisee. And uh, he basically, within his works, rewrites the Bible. And so it's it's probably our earliest commentary we have on books such as Genesis. We don't have older descriptions and commentary on what's going on there. And how he describes the world is, you could say it's Calvinistic, quote unquote, but his perception was that God is active and involved in the world, even in minor details, and brings things to certain conclusions that God wants. But it wasn't a fatalistic determination. There are different ways to get to the same outcome, and God had control and was working in history to achieve those outcomes. But let's take a look at how he describes the fall in Genesis, which is incredibly interesting. First of all, uh, the snake he says the snake is just a snake and the snake is one of many animals and all animals could talk at the time. Uh, then moving down, God puts man and woman in this garden and it says, but when God came into the garden, Adam, who was wont before to come and converse with him. So God is used to walking in the garden and God is used to having uh, Adam run up to him and start talking to him. Right? So God in, in uh, Josephus's mind is like, okay, I'm just going to go down and we're going to have a conversation with Adam and it's just going to be a normal day. But then it doesn't happen. So God's like confused. God's like, what's going on? He says, being conscious of his wicked behavior, Adam went out of the way. This behavior surprised God. And he asked him, what was the cause of this procedure? And so this is Josephus. He's a practicing Pharisee. He grew up trained in pharisaical schools. Let's just read read his, his, his biography, what he says. Uh, he talks about uh, going among the various sects. The first of that was the Pharisees, the second of the Sadducees, and third of the Essenes, as we frequently told you. I thought by this means I might choose the best. So he, he actually has a broad uh, 
broad exposure to various sects of Jewish philosophy, uh, but he ultimately settles with the Pharisees. It says, being now 19 years old, I began to conduct myself according to the rules of the sects of the Pharisees. He's a common Pharisee. He has exposure to all the different philosophies at that time. And here he is in Genesis talking about God's expectations being thwarted and failing, God expecting certain conversations to take place that do not take place, and then God being surprised by man's behavior. That They're not Calvinists. They're not Platonists. His conception of God is not one of pure actuality. You'll you'll find statements from Josephus about like things like uh, omnipresence, God being everywhere. But what does he mean by that? Does he just mean the normal idea that God's power can reach everywhere? What's he talking about there? But it's it's not it is not the idea. Whatever it is, it's not the idea of God being pure simplicity, outside of time, changeless, ineffable. Platonistic value sets. He, he he doesn't have. He's not talking about that when he's talking about these things. He's a normal Jewish individual at this time who's gone through these schools of philosophy. He's a normal Pharisee. When you look at the post-biblical literature, the the Hebrew literature from uh, the fall of Jerusalem in five eighty six to uh, probably a hundred A.D. These rabbis and the rabbinic commentators, the Mishnah, they don't, they don't know anything about these um, philosophical categories about immutability and ineffability. They, they, they're, when, when they're talking and they're giving their commentaries on the Bible, they, they sound like uh, God can listen to them, that God responds to them in real time, and even that, that they can change God's mind. So... <clears throat> this this idea is purely a planistic idea. It does not come from the Jewish tradition. Yeah, the idea of God as pure simplicity, God being immutable and partless, that just the mindset's just not available. So even when the Jews start arguing with the Christians, and I think you get an example in the Talmud, which could be dated to about 160 A.D., where the Jews finally say, yeah, okay, okay, I guess God knows all things in the future. It's it's still not adopting that Platonistic framework as God as conception, God as being transcendent, right? The Platonist idea of God being purely simplex, it's just not there. But you do see it gradually infiltrate Christianity. You see the Gnostics start talking about these ideas Pantaneus is an interesting example because uh, he interacts with uh, various individuals and he talks about God being unable to become acquainted with things. And you see those adoptions of Platonist values um, before or preceding that 190 AD type time frame. Of course, you're going to find it in the Gnostics well before that. Reading through all the Gnostic texts, it's, it's very, very eye-opening that these guys are Platonists arguing Platonistic value sets and then arguing among themselves about what's the best Platonistic system. They, they had, let, let's say, dissensions from God. They had various deities that spawned from God in succession. And the idea was to, to separate God from the material world. And the more steps that they add, the, the more they could insulate God from changingness. And changingness was degradation and so that, so in that sense, they could firm up God and save his character 
save the idea of God by putting those levels in between God and the material world. And of course, in all these systems, the goal always is to reascend towards the one, reascend towards God. Augustine did introspective meditation to flee the material world, ascend back into the realm of the ideas, and then perhaps have a glimpse at God, which he claims to have done in the confessions. He, he did multiple ascents in the confessions, but one where he claimed to reach that true enlightenment. Uh, Plotinus also has a claim about his self-enlightening. One of his one of his sessions of introspective meditation, he claims also to have reached that final level of ascent. You know, apart, apart from Philo, <clears throat> which most Jews didn't follow, you really didn't have a Platonic uh, conception of God in the in the Jewish writers until Maimonides. He, he was like 12th century A.D. or something, 12 centuries after Christ. You know, they call him Rambam, and he, it was largely uh, an accommodation because the uh, <clears throat> the Christians had this. Uh, Platonic conception of God, and so I think I think it's kind of in response to that. But uh, um, you know the, the the Shiites and the, and the the other people they had a concept of God that also adapted you know, the Platonic concepts, and so there there was a pressure uh, to in, in the Jewish uh, <clears throat> literature to to adopt these concepts. Right. So uh, in conclusion, I will kind of wrap us up here. We're about an hour, 30 minutes. We, it, it's not like some people say that open theists are just making up this uh, Hellenization of Christianity, this Platonistic influence. It's pretty clear and obvious. We got smoking gun data. It's not, it's not just random inferences. We're not saying, oh, the Christians had this view at this time, and it looks kind of like Platonist views at this time. They're, they're smoking guns. There's Augustine saying the Bible was absurd until he read it in light of Platonism. We, we have people like Justin Martyr declaring they're going through Platonism before they came to Christianity. We have lines of ascension. We, we have mapped out who was whose disciple and where they came from and what their influences were. It's not guesswork. It's, it's pretty clear that uh, these conceptions of immutability and simplicity and timelessness and ineffability, they're not concepts you find in any writers of the Bible. There, there's no passage that sits there and talks about introspective metaphysics, about changeableness in the one. It's just not there within the Bible. It's a different mindset. Categorically, it's incorrect to claim that the Bible teaches these things. They did not have access to these categories. It's, it's not within their theological vocabulary to talk about God's simplicity or being simplex or even ideas such as free will. It, it, it's just obvious it, in their minds. In their minds, it's just obvious everyone has free will. It's, there's not a consideration, oh, what if people were like controlled from above and didn't have free will to make decisions categorically? that's not an option for them to discuss. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you see common modern speakers, when they have to prove text, they have to do it in this way where they grab half a verse, they turn to Malachi 3, they grab half a verse, and that half a verse must mean their metaphysics. And then they give a long lecture about their metaphysics, and they point to that one half of a verse. But you never see them exploring context to show 
what in context would lead any normal rational person to conclude that that small phrase, oh, I, the Lord, do not change, or God is not a man that he should repent, why that small phrase implies their metaphysics rather than any other option, rather than our normal options that we have. God says, hey, man doesn't change. Oh, I'm frustrated because these guys don't change. I'm trying to get them to change and they never change. It's it's not about Greek metaphysics. It's just about character, who they are, right? So, yeah, go ahead. The best paper on this, the best information is The Hellenization of Christianity by Christopher Fisher. Go to the internet and pull that down and read it. It's a good read. It explains everything. Explain some things. It's uh, <laughs> it it could be more detailed, and I could be pulling up more ancient sources and showing uh, the the progression of ideas better, which which I hope to rectify in the near future with this draft book that I keep showing on on my podcasts. And so this draft book is uh, the Hellenization of Christianity, the book. God is open. So hopefully this is my next book and hopefully I get enough time to work on it and get it where, to where I want it to be and ready for release. But this will go through all the various ancient sources, what each individual text, their perception of God, where their stance was, the pagans and their conceptions of uh, Israelite religion and worship all through the Bible. And then after, after Paul and and the church fathers and Gnostics and their perceptions. And that will show the change as time progresses, the adoption and influence of these categories, were, which were not, not pre-existent. They were not there before this Platonization took place that categorically did not think or conceptualize like this. <laughs> CG writes, Hezekiah 316, behold, I am simple. Yay, I am equal to all my parts. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. So I, I think this podcast did a little bit better than the Black Sheep Theology podcast, which was kind of all over the place, at illustrating just some basic truth and evidence on the Hellenization, the Platonization of Christianity, how Christianity adopted a mindset that we just, we don't find that mindset in the Bible. And so th th these are all primary sources. We, we've put up the quotes. You could search those quotes on Google. You could go to the primary sources. You could read the primary sources. It would be worthwhile if you're interested in the subject to read all of Confessions. And uh, also you could read the companion book, Augustine Conversion to Confessions, which uh, is a scholar talking about all of these things and Augustine's journey and his mindset and and Manichaeanism and, and Platonism and just the development as he goes through confessions. That's a good companion work to understand this. And you can go read Aeneids, Plotinus's Aeneids. You might need a companion work for that because it's pretty dense uh, to understand those concepts. But any anyone could just go look at the evidence. When you see unevidenced claims, you might want to just dismiss them unless, unless they could back that up with some sort of evidence. They say, oh, Christianity wasn't Platonized. Well, what's your evidence? You have you have Augustine over here saying the Bible is absurd until he read it in light of Plotinus, right? That That is some evidence. It, that seems to be pretty good evidence that he thought the Bible was absurd without Platonism. That might 
tell you something about his mindset and how dependent he was on Platonism for his beliefs. That might give us some sort of insight. Anyways, uh, we'll kind of close there. Craig, any closing thoughts? Um, if you have a chance, go to the Catholic biographies on Augustine. Read what they have to say about him. They'll confirm everything we've been saying. Yeah, th <clears throat> this is this is not a controversial opinion, despite what some people tr might try to make out. It's 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 just, it's the common scholarly opinion that. Christianity has been Platonized. So if anyone has any questions, comments, concerns, you can put that down below on our YouTube channel or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group. Thank you for listening.